Well, let me draw your attention to Isaiah chapter 6. And we'll look at verses 1 through 6. I mean 1 through 8, I'm sorry. You know, one of my favorite writers of all times is a Texan. He's born in Texas, South Texas, brush country, uh, around Live Oak County. His name is J. Frank Doby. Born back in the, the late 1800s. Uh, he wrote just, I don't know, dozens of books on Texas folklore, Texas legend. Some of the stuff that he wrote were true accounts of different things that had happened. J. Frank Dovey was kind of a curmudgeon. I mean, he really was. He could be kind of grouchy, but you never really saw that, that much in his books. And if you like to read things about Texas, and who shouldn't, uh, <laughs> I can tell you one thing. Uh, in all the books of his that I've ever read, I've never found any profanity, nothing lewd or anything like that. It's not that he didn't use bad words in his own private life, but he just didn't put it in his books. And so moms and dads, if your kids want to read it, they're not going to learn anything bad. And it's pretty good stuff. But one of the things that he stated one time in the foreword to one of his books is he said, I believe that a good tale has done more to help humankind than most of what passes for social sciences today. And I think that he's right. Uh, there's just something about a good story or a good tale that uh, draws me in, and I, I guess that's the reason I tell so many of them. And, uh, and so, and I've also found that I can put you to sleep with a story as much as I can with a sermon. So, but I want to tell you one that involves me. Now listen carefully to what I'm telling you. Don't, don't go to sleep during the middle of this story. But I don't know how I ended up there. But I was found myself just sitting down on the ground on a dusty, dirty road. And there was only one person around, and this guy was huge. I'm serious. I mean, he was six foot four, probably 250 pounds. You know, he had fists like cantaloupes and arms that were rippling with muscles. And he was intent on destroying me. And he was about 50 feet away, and he started coming. And for whatever reason that day, I had with me a 45 caliber single-action revolver. And I eared the hammer back, and I shot, and he kind of jerked and flinched, but he kept on coming. And so I shot again, and again, and again, and again. And I hit my mark every time, because he just kept getting closer and closer and closer. And then when he was about three feet away from me, I eared the hammer back one more time and pulled the trigger and heard this sickening sound. It was a click. And I knew that meant that I had used up everything that I had. And then this giant monster of a man just came uncoupled and collapsed at my feet, never to move again. And that's when I woke up. <laughs> My heart was pounding out of my chest. I was in a cold sweat. And that was a dream that I had, oh goodness, I don't know, maybe 40 years ago. And I've had other nightmares, but I don't remember them, but I remember that one. And I really don't care to have that kind of a nightmare again. But sometimes, you know, those, you can have some weird dreams that stick with you. And I'm going to tell you something. There was a prophet named Isaiah that he had a vision and it shivered his timbers in a way that he never could get over it. Let's read this 
story, this account of a vision that was a startling vision, but it was also a life-changing one. The prophet Isaiah says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. We've heard that so many times. But I want you to think about one of the ideas that's involved in it. It has to do with the holiness of God and what our response to it should be. As I said, we were going to be talking about this whole idea of holiness uh, for a while. We talked last Sunday about what holiness is not. And uh, to do away with the ideas that holiness just meant that you were a legalist and that you didn't, you know, play pool on Sunday or do something like that or that you had joined a, a monastery and you cut yourself off from the rest of the world. And we said, you know, those things are not in and of themselves the things that make us holy. Just because you do certain things like that doesn't mean that you're holy. So let's talk about what holiness is. And if we're going to talk about holiness, really where we have to start after we toss out all the wrong ideas about holiness, where we have to start is with the prime example of holiness or the paragon of holiness or the pattern of holiness, and that is God. Everything that you can say about God, whether it's his omniscience or his omnipresence or his omnipotence, everything about him is founded on his holiness. The whole idea of being holy, folks, has to do with this, is that you are set apart. You're different. And, and, and when we talk about our God, we have to say that God stands alone. He stands above and he stands apart from all other persons and things, both real and imaginary, both physical and spiritual. The idea that we see in here is, is our God sits enthroned. He sits as a king. He is the ruler and he is the, uh, we might say, the dictator of everything in this whole universe. And that includes you and me. God reigns in holiness. He rules, and, he, and in saying that, we are saying that God rules eternally. We can talk about all the kings that Isaiah was connected with. We can talk about all the Jewish kings that we can read about in the Bible. We can talk about Saul. We can talk about David. We can talk about any king that you want to in the Bible. They might be kings, but there was a difference with God because those kings didn't live forever. Uh, Uzziah was a king for a long time, but if I don't 
I don't know if he even saw his 70th birthday. I know that uh, I think David made it for 70 years. There were some of them that just lasted a few years. But our God rules eternally. Since I was born, uh, several men have occupied the Oval Office in Washington, D.C. Whenever I was born, Harry Truman was the president. After him, he was succeeded by Dwight Eisenhower. Eisenhower was succeeded by John Kennedy. John Kennedy was succeeded by Lyndon Johnson. And then there was Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton and George W. Bush and Barack Obama and uh, Donald Trump and, and also Joe Biden. For some of those guys that they have just about been forgotten on the pages of history. And few of the policies that they made ever lasted. You know, I, I remember whenever Lyndon Johnson was getting close to the end of his first elect, his only elected term, and he made the statement that he said, I choose not to run again. And some people thought, well, he was just afraid he wouldn't win. Well, some people have said, well, one of the reasons that he chose not to run again was simply because he was disgusted, he was disenchanted with what was going on around him. You may remember that during the time that he was a president, we were dealing with the war in Vietnam, Robert Kennedy was, was assassinated, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, and there were riots and all kinds of stuff going on around the country, and even in Washington, D.C., there were riots and buildings were being torched. And at one point, Lyndon Johnson was looking out the window of the Oval Office and seeing smoke coming up from all the flames and the fires that had been set. And he said, I just wish you would look at that. He said, after all that I did to help people, this is the thanks that I get. And the thing is, is you can't even, a lot of people here can't even remember what he did that he thought was going to help people. There is no ruler that has ever walked upon the face of this earth that is a king like God is king. He is above and beyond all others. Let me tell you something, and uh, I, don't, I don't get political very much because I, I don't really think it does a whole lot of good at times. But what we ought to do if we are followers of Jesus Christ, we ought to put our faith in our God rather than in a political philosophy. That's what's going to change nations. That's what's going to change worlds. It has nothing to do with your political philosophies as much as it has to do with who is in charge of your life. Whom do you recognize as holy? God rules unchangingly. We read this in, in the letter of James where James says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. You can read that in James 1.17. There's one of the, the hymns that we sing, and it is, Great is thy faithfulness. O God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not, as thou hast been forever, thou shalt be. God doesn't change. He rules exclusively. The, the, what the seraphim or these angel beings were saying back and forth to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. He is the one who rules the whole earth. 
In the, in the Psalm number 19, it says, The heavens recount the glory of God, and the sky declares His handiwork. He is the one who is in charge of all things. He rules exclusively uh, he's, uh, the, because the whole earth is full of His glory. As a matter of fact, there was one, and, and I believe I'm correct on this, and it probably doesn't make any difference whether I'm wrong or not, but there was this Dutch theologian named Abraham Kuyper, and I believe that he said this. I've probably mentioned it before. But to kind of paraphrase it, he said, there is not a square foot in all creation where the Lord cannot stand and say, mine. In other words, our God is the one who everything about this creation, it belongs to him. He, he rules not only exclusively, but he also rules with power and authority. He is referred to as the Lord of hosts. We see that term quite a bit, but understand what host means. It's not talking about someone who throws a party for everyone and invites the whole neighborhood. A host, whenever you account this word in the, in the scriptures, it is referring to an army. And he is the Lord of armies. He is the Lord of, of hosts. Uh, if, if any of you have ever read Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the Bible that called The Message, right? The way he paraphrases that term is he calls it the Lord of angel armies and not a bad translation of it because what we're talking about is our king who rules with power and he rules with authority. God's not only reigns in holiness, but God's holiness is what should provoke our awe and our praise. Whenever, <clears throat> because holiness is the basis of his nature. It is his holiness that sets him apart from all the other things that are created. Nature changes. God doesn't. There are some people that want to worship nature, but God is not a part of nature. He is the creator and the sovereign over nature. To worship nature is to worship what has what is is to worship what is something that is less than ourselves. Is a pine tree more complicated than you are? <laughs> you know. Is a rat more complicated than you are? Can a rat speak in languages that other people can understand? Can it write anything? No. But we find people that want to worship the creation, and when they do, they lower themselves. You are never going to rise above what you worship, and if you're worshiping just nature itself, you have placed yourself below nature. Understand this. It is, it is God's holiness sets him apart. He is the creator of nature. Don't worship what he created. Worship the one who is the creator. God's holiness is what sets him apart from all other gods. The seraphim were going back and saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Now, understand this. It's back at that time, there were all kinds of religions. Well, somewhat like we have now, but some of them, you know, there was Molech that people were worshipped by throwing their babies in a fire and sacrificing their children. There was Chemosh, who was a horrible, vicious god. There was uh, Baal, Ash, the uh, Ashtaroth, and some of these others. And you could go on down the line of these, these gods that other people worshipped. Get this. These pagan gods were referred to as holy. And, but the reason that they were referred to as holy was simply because they were considered to be stronger than human beings or maybe smarter than human beings. There was a difference between them and our God. 
because whenever we refer to God as holy, it's not just that he's more powerful. It's not just that he's wiser. It's not just that his, his character is different. It is different because our God is pure. <laughs> that is the thing that when you're talking about God being holy, one of the things that it takes in is his purity, his moral purity. Other gods that, that people worship may have claimed that they were more powerful and they were more terrifying or more mysterious, but they could not claim that their gods were morally pure because they certainly were not. The gods that the Greeks worshipped, the gods that the, the Canaanite people worshipped were anything but morally pure. God's holiness is something that inspires our reverence even from the purest of creatures. And I know I've told you this at least two or three times, but you were probably asleep by the time I got to it in this part of the sermon, was that where that time that I was at the Good Friday service and the man began his prayer with our Father before whom angels hide their faces. Understand this, is that if the, if the purest of creations if these pure angels that are much purer than we are, whenever they're faced with God, they hide their faces from him. In this vision that Isaiah said, this is telling us something about <clears throat> how, what kind of reverence even these pure angels show whenever they're in the presence of the holy God. And whenever we think about this, is whenever we think about holiness and God's holiness, what it should do to us is it should cause us to see the fact that we lack holiness and, and, and we see our lack of holiness and our deficiency. Whenever Isaiah had this vision, what did he see? <laughs> he saw the Lord sitting enthroned upon his throne and his, the, the train of his robe filled up the place where he was sitting. And what did Isaiah say? He said, woe is me. I am undone, as it puts it in the King James Version. In other words, I'm toast, <laughs> you know, because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. How did he know that? The seraphim didn't tell him that. He didn't hear God speaking and telling him, you've had it, Buster. He didn't hear that. It was just this very fact. When he was faced with the purity and the holiness and the greatness of God, he began to realize how small and how sinful he was. Now, then the, way that, the reason that he said that he was undone and that he was that he had had it was because he said because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips well why was he talking about that well maybe the rest the idea is this is that <clears throat> he refers to uncleanness with regard to lips is because our mouths expose the rottenness of our hearts that's what Jesus said at one point he said, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. And then, when God says, you know, and then what happens is this, is that this seraphim, one of the seraphim came, and they took a coal from the altar. And they touched Isaiah's lips with it. Because if we want to serve in God's presence, we have to be pure. 
We are never going to see ourselves as we really are until we comprehend something of God's holiness. And we are never going to crave or appreciate his forgiveness until we understand something about God's holiness. This is the reason that we're told that we should strive for holiness because without it, no one's going to see God. I mean, this is a really serious issue. And here's the good news, though, is that God will, un- will cleanse unholy people. And what we see is this, is that this, this coal that was taken and that was, that was touched to Isaiah's lips, this was a gracious act of God. You know, Isaiah couldn't say to God, oh, my word, you know, I've had it now, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to get killed. But wait a minute, God. Wait just a moment. You know that time I helped a little old lady across the street? You know, and, uh, and then there was a time that I saw this young lady that had broken down on the highway, and she had five little crumb snatchers running around her feet, and I stopped, and I helped her with her car and got her back on the road. Don't you think I deserve a break? No, because when we understand God's holiness, we realize that we don't deserve a break. And the cleansing that he gives us is something that we could never earn. It's just simply an act of His grace. And another thing that we can see is that this cleansing is, is a just type of cleansing. You know, a coal was taken, but where did it come from? It was not on a campfire. It was on the altar where, where sin offerings would be lifted up. Kind of involving this is that what we're talking about here is what is going to cleanse us, is what is going to... Uh, how we are going to be made right with God is that God is not going to sweep our sins under the carpet and act like it never happened. A payment has to be made. A sin offering has to be made. And that is the way that we can be forgiven. That's the reason that you can say, I have hope and I have a sure and certain hope that one day I am going to stand in the presence of God and rejoice at the feet of Jesus. Why? My sins were paid for. You know, God didn't just sweep it under the rug. He took care of the issue. He paid for our sins. And then we see this is that he, he purifies us thoroughly. And uh, the idea behind this is the purifying nature of, of fire. Understand that God's purity is never compromised by our impurity. Rather, his moral purity overwhelms our unholiness in the filth of our lives. Now, one other thing about this is that God requires holiness for us to be able to serve him. He says, whom shall I send and whom and who shall and who shall go for us? And uh, it was not until Isaiah had his lips cleansed before he could be doing what God wanted him to do. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, We read this. It says, Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. In other words, if we want to be used by God... The only way it's going to happen is if we pursue holiness. It has to be that way. 
Just like he said, in every house there's different kinds of bowls or vessels that are used or plates. There's nice things like gold and silver. And then there's other junk. I mean, it's made out of clay, made out of wood. You'd call it a slop jar if you wanted to because that's about all that it is. If you want to be a slop jar, you don't have to worry about holiness. But if you want to be a special vessel, something of gold and silver, what we have to do is cleanse ourselves by God's grace from what is dishonorable. I want to be an honorable vessel. And I'm not going to do it if I don't pursue holiness. Now, there's one little thing that I read just this week. And I was reading along, and I mentioned something about this guy a couple of Wednesday nights ago. His name's Andrew Murray. He wrote a lot of books on prayer. And, he, and this is something I found in a little book called Living a Prayerful Life. And he talks about holiness. He said the meaning of the words, the holiness of God, is not easily expressed. But we may begin by saying that these words imply the unspeakable aversion and hatred with which God regards sin. If you want to understand what that means, remember that he preferred to see his son die than that sin should reign in us. Now think of the Son of God who gave up his life rather than act in the smallest matter against the will of the Father. He had such a hatred for sin that he preferred to die rather than let men be held in its power. And we're not going to be holy until we have this hatred and loathing and aversion for sin. Be ye holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That's what we need to strive for. As the scripture says, without it, no one sees God. Let's pray together. Now, our Lord, again, we come to you seeking a blessing. And Lord, we confess to you that so often we are justly characterized as people of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips. And Lord, we, we've asked many times for you to give us love for one another. But we also ask you now to give us a hatred and an aversion for sin and all that makes us unholy. Lord, we thank you for your grace that you show us whenever we're wrong. We're thankful for the cleansing that you give us. Lord, we're just thankful for you being who you are. There's no one else like you. No one. And we thank you for your faithfulness. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.